0: Welcome to the ASCA Viewpoints Podcast, the podcast where we talk about the student conduct profession in higher education. I'm Jill Creighton, your Viewpoints host. episode was recorded in July of 2017, so well before the rescinding of the 2011 and 2014 Dear Colleague Letters by the U.S. Department of Education. So you're going to hear us speculate in the conversation about what might happen, but we're not able to dig into the future because it hadn't quite happened yet. So I hope you enjoy the conversation and you get a lot out of it, even though we're not able to go into a deep dive or analysis of the rescinding of the 2014 and 2011 letters. Hope you enjoy the episode. Today's episode features Scott Schneider, who is an attorney at Fisher Phillips, where he heads up the firm's Higher Education Practice Group. Scott is a well-accomplished attorney uh, who has spent six years in-house as Associate General Counsel for Tulane University. Uh, He also served as an ASCA faculty member for the Trauma-Informed Investigation Track a couple of years ago. Uh, But Scott is well-respected as an editor of the NACUA Journal. Uh, He also Heads up the current Fisher Phillips Higher Education Practice Group, where they provide expert witness testimony on issues related to sexual misconduct. And he's also been a litigator in the past. Um, The conversation with Scott that you'll hear is just really rich. We cover everything from trauma informed investigation with sexual misconduct to cultivating a good relationship with your general counsel through the intersection of uh, disability concerns as they relate to student conduct and behavior intervention. So this conversation is very rich, uh, and Scott does give a lot of legal opinions, but I want to just provide the disclaimer that Scott cannot provide you, the listeners here, uh, with legal advice, and he strongly encourages you all to go to your general counsels for independent advice at your individual institutions. So I hope you enjoy this conversation. Here we go. All right, welcome to the podcast, Scott Schneider. Jill, how are you? I'm great this morning. How are you doing? I am living the dream, Jill. We love it. Well, we're so thankful to Scott for being able to join us today. Uh, Scott, as I mentioned in the intro, uh, served as Garing Academy faculty on trauma-informed investigations related to sexual misconduct. Uh, And Scott also serves as associate general counsel and adjunct faculty in the law program at Tulane. So we're really grateful to talk to you today.
1: Right. Um, The only thing I would... I, I used to be associate general counsel at Tulane, but I'm still on the law faculty, but... Uh, Now I'm in private practice um, where I represent higher education institutions around the country.
0: And you spent some significant time in private practice before coming into higher ed, correct?
1: Yeah, (laughs) I was. So I had no experience with higher ed for probably the first decade of my law practice. I was... Kind of a well. I was a fancy pants partner at a, uh, the the firm I'm I'm at now, actually, um, and specialized in management side labor and employment law. So Title Seven, employment discrimination, stuff like that.
0: So you've really kind of seen it all in terms of the gamut of what there is in terms of legal issues in higher ed.
1: Uh, <laughs> yes. Yes. So um, at at some point um, I went to work. I think it was around 2009. Went to work, took my first uh, and only in-house job with Tulane University as associate general counsel. And among other responsibilities, you know, I did the employment work. I did um, some contract negotiations. But that was my first introduction to student affairs um, law and the student affairs world. And I totally fell in love with it. Um, I love working with the the people in student affairs. I love the variety of the the issues that we're dealing with in student affairs. And, And at Tulane, for instance, I served on the behavioral intervention team I had responsibilities with respect to student conduct in terms of writing or participating in the writing of a new code of conduct, Title IX responsibilities, um, you know, ADA responsibilities. So I've, I've certainly seen it all in that field, and it's just a fascinating field. And then probably about two or three years into it, Uh, my tenure at Tulane, um, I was doing a lot of speaking nationally on higher ed issues in particular on student affairs issues. And the faculty at the law school, there's a faculty member by the name of Amy Guida, who is sort of a a higher ed guru on legal issues. Um, She asked me if I would be interested in basically filling in and teaching her higher ed law class. So I started doing that, I think, about 2012 and um, have now kind of seen it all uh, and have been doing that for for quite a while um, as well.
0: Given kind of your gamut of experiences with student conduct officers, what did you learn about the student conduct profession and how would you recommend that student conduct officers kind of cultivate the best relationship they can with general counsel.
1: Yeah. So um, <laughs> it's what I would say, and, and I've made friends. And when I was in-house, and now I guess I'm on the outhouse uh, or in the outhouse, uh, you know, have friends. I am friends with folks who are in student conduct officer, uh, in the student conduct officer role. Uh, You know, sometimes I feel like uh, the vast majority of my conversations, I'm playing therapist (laughs) as opposed to legal advisor, right? You know, providing support because...
0: You're a confidential place (laughs) to (laughs) vent.
1: Yeah, exactly. Um, Wow. I, I think the folks in these roles have incredibly difficult jobs and I you know I'm I've become really a fan of the history of higher ed law and if you you know you look back certainly you know if you go back a hundred years but if you go back just 20 30 years a lot of what student conduct officers were doing you know that it wasn't subject to to scrutiny Um, You know, it was sort of done beneath the surface and handled in a fairly confidential way. And there were certainly, you know, there were exceptions, obviously, but rarely were attorneys involved kind of second guessing decisions made by student conduct officers uh, and deans of students and alike. And when you ended up with that sort of litigation, a lot of deference was given to the institution. Um, that whole world, in a fairly dramatic way, I would say, since the 2011 Dear Colleague letter, it has changed. You know, certainly now by law, and this is unusual, we have lawyers who are allowed to be a part of our process and if I had a criticism, uh, and I, I have a few perhaps of the two thousand eleven Dear Colleague letter, you know, one of the criticisms I would have is that it's turned our student disciplinary proceedings into what looks a lot like quasi court proceedings, and the the introduction of lawyers really accentuates that as well. Um, and and what we're seeing, I think, is a willingness, certainly on the litigation side to um you know challenge the decisions of student conduct officers that that frankly I think we're at an unprecedented clip there, number one in terms of volume, and number two, in terms of courts being reluctant to interfere, courts seem to be a lot more willing to sit back and and second guess. The decisions made by student uh, disciplinary boards student conduct officers which is unusual and I, i think you combine that with a political climate certainly on campus where you know a narrative is spun out there about what happened and our hands are tied because of FERPA or just real concerns about the confidentiality of our students to provide a more nuanced explanation of what happened. Uh, And then you also couple that with a media that really is, I've used this word a lot lately, uh, ideological on both sides, Um, whether it's folks that seem to suggest, and I think of like the college fix, or um, some of these entities that seem to suggest that there's this, within campus communities, this rush to just find, um, in particular, male students responsible for sex misconduct. And they put out these stories that are really one-sided and over simplistic. And and the flip is, obviously, on the other side, and you, you think of, and I just went to a talk where the the dean from UVA who was involved in the Rolling Stone Mm -hmm. uh, situation, Mm -hmm. um, you know, there is this, within the journalistic spheres, this willingness to really oversimplify these issues towards ideological ends, and the public just seems to consume this information not critically, so I think these are really, really difficult jobs at this point for a variety uh, for all of those reasons, the legal reasons, the scrutiny on campus uh, and then the the media scrutiny that has existed for a while and I will just say this, at least in my experience, which at this point is very broad the vast majority, the vast majority of folks in student conduct and student affairs are both concerned with, and I've sort of gotten right into sex assault because that's, not, you know, the hot topic, but they're concerned with how do we stop sex assault, but they're also concerned with due process. They realize, hey, these are both of our students, you know, and and frankly, for the most part, in dealing with these issues, come up with nuanced ways to to handle them in an environment that they know at the end of the day someone is going to be upset with the end result of their process so i think it's a really really tough profession to be in i think historically we're sort of in an unprecedented time for a variety of reasons and the folks that are working this area in this area you know are brave they have to be committed Um, And they have to have a real concern about the well-being of the students that have been entrusted to them.
0: Definitely. And I think that if you talk to any conduct officer, we'll all tell you that our first and foremost priority is an ethic of care for the students. Uh, And we're looking at the conduct process as a learning opportunity in our uh, Title IX processes, our sexual misconduct investigation adjudication processes have become significantly more regulated over the last couple of years.
1: Yeah, there was a case that just came out um involving, you know, Notre Dame which as far as I can tell, I mean Notre Dame, you know, is doing great work in this area, but it was a student who was found responsible for sexual misconduct and I think was either suspended or expelled from school and he filed a request for a preliminary injunction to allow him to stay in class for you know his exams, and he was ultimately successful uh, in court in getting that injunction. And one of the issues that the judge fixated on was why his attorney was allowed to attend, which is, as we know, a VAWA or Clery requirement at this point, but not meaningfully participate. And the response from the university, which is the correct response and which is what you said, is, you know, this is an educational uh, opportunity, that our, our process here is not designed to be from the beginning, punitive in nature. It's designed to be educational, to change behavior. Uh, And the judge just immediately dismissed that as self-serving and inconsistent with basically what happened um, in that case. And I I suspect that's a significant development that we're going to have to monitor over time. Has student conduct Changed fundamentally such that, especially on these sorts of issues, that education of both students is really a secondary um, consideration. That what we should be concerned about is kind of the punitive aspects of this. And I have mixed feelings. About if number one, are we going in that direction? Are we there yet? And and if we are, is that a good development um, that is sustainable over time?
0: Well, in our processes, you know, many campuses are using the exact same process to manage Title IX concerns as they are for using the process for alcohol-related concerns, or you know, underage consumption, or consumption of marijuana, or things like that. Uh, but we also see a lot of campuses that decided to kind of bifurcate their processes and create one for your uh, policy violations that don't involve a Title IX component, and then a separate one for those that do. And, I, you know, it, my conversations with folks in the profession is we're retaining that same educational lens very clearly and, and more easily in our original processes than we are in the ones that are becoming more high profile, even though they may be a much smaller percentage of the caseload.
1: Yeah, it's an interesting issue. I, I think the, the thing, so again, we're kind of focused on sex misconduct, which I'm happy to change the subject. <laughs> I mean, it's, we spend a lot of time on this issue. Um, I, 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 I would say this, and it's it's a question that I think is worth raising. Um, you know, if a student is disciplined for an alcohol offense, or goes through our conduct process for an alcohol offense, uh, offense, and is found. Responsible for a variety of reasons that probably is not going to impact him or her in a fairly significant way throughout the course of their education. Um, you know, as schools more and more start contemplating. Number one, you know, this reflexive expulsion, for instance, or separation from school for all sex misconduct violations and other schools start saying, hey, if you are found responsible at another institution for sexual misconduct, we're not allowing you to, to transfer to our institution it seems to me that the stakes are considerably higher sure. in those sorts of cases. And it does, I think, prompt the question about, well, if the, the, given how high the stakes are, should we be handling these sorts of cases the way we, we handle kind of, I don't want to say run-of-the-mill because that – Um, seems like we're diminishing the importance of some of this. But some of our more run-of-the-mill cases where the consequences, frankly, aren't that high. Um,
0: Sure, that makes sense. And I
1: think there, you know, I I have some thoughts about that. I know different people have some thoughts about it. But, you know, that's what makes, I think, these sorts of cases at some level fundamentally unique because clearly, not just within the institution, but within higher ed in general, um, the stakes are exceptionally high for a student who's found responsible.
0: Definitely. Now, before we get out of the weeds on sexual misconduct, I did want to touch base with you on the trauma-informed investigation pieces that your firm has been training on.
1: Yeah. So obviously, you know, this is now a requirement under vawa under the Clery act that the the folks who are doing are are deciding in these sex misconduct cases that they understand um the impact that trauma may have on people who 've experienced you know sexual misconduct you know i when I do training on this, I point out you know a couple of things I mean clearly, there is considerable research out there and And really good research out there about how people react in atypical ways when they experience trauma. I mean, if, you know the the kind of cliche is, for instance, somebody might respond with a flat effect. Or they cannot recall details in a chronological order uh, because of the way the, and I don't want to get into uh, the, how the brain operates and all that, I'm merely a lawyer, but how the brain stores information while you are experiencing trauma. And from our standpoint, from a school standpoint, there are a couple of important things there. Number one, that when we are interviewing people who've experienced trauma, that there is a way to interview them, right, which can access sort of that important detail information that we need in order to have a meaningful investigation, I use something, it was developed by um, Strand, Colonel Strand, who did work with the U.S. Army, which is the Forensic Experiential Trauma Interview, which, by the way, you know, as I like to say, it ain't rocket surgery. Um, it's, it's, It's not complicated. You know, it's basically get out of the way, let the person tell their side of the story in the way that they can recall it. What we do is we work on sensory information to help gain access to details. Like we might ask someone, do you recall any specific smells um, while this was going on? Because there is evidence suggesting that allows the person who's experienced trauma maybe to find new details. So that's a part of it. The other part of it is, You know, in the past, and if you look at police investigations in particular, when someone did something that was counterintuitive, what a law enforcement agency might do is say, well, I don't think this happened, um, and therefore I'm shutting down the sex assault investigation. A great example of that would be, um, hey, you know, there was an assault. Uh, It was in, let's say, a res hall where there were tons of people outside or in a fraternity house where there were other people there. And the question is, well, if you were being raped, why didn't you scream? Why didn't you run? And what the research has showed is, look, there's a thing called tonic immobility. Um, When we are under uh, dealing with a traumatic situation, our fight, flight, or freeze response kicks in and everybody's unique and sometimes when people are dealing with trauma they freeze and so in the past when we had fairly unsophisticated investigations of these if there was this counterintuitive behavior like this well you didn't scream therefore it didn't happen and so we want our panels whoever's deciding these sorts of cases to be trauma-informed to understand no in fact <laughs> this may be consistent with trauma. Now, what I say when I do training is we can do this well, but we can also do this poorly. For instance, a complainant who comes forward may not recall specific details, all right, or may have a difficult time recalling specific details. Sorry. That, that might be because he or she um, is experiencing trauma, and maybe we're doing a poor job of asking the, the question, or it may go to credibility. And so when I see trauma-informed being done poorly, um, it is, oh, this person engaged in counterintuitive behavior. This person can't recall details. Therefore, it's more likely that this happened. Um, i I don't think that's correct when we talk about being trauma informed we talk about when we see these things we don't automatically dismiss the the complainant when we see atypical behavior or difficulty recalling details or as I mentioned the second ago, um, you know somebody didn't run or didn't scream. Uh, it doesn't necessarily mean that the person is incredible. They may be experiencing trauma, and we need to meaningfully evaluate that.
0: And what does that meaning meaningful evaluation look like or sound like?
1: God, you know, so that that's always tough. Um, in, in these, um, you know, I think one of the interesting uh, issues that has come up in these Cases is um, for, for instance, do we bring in experts to help us through these, or are we comfortable that the folks involved have sufficient training to to make these calls? But it's literally you know, hey, someone has told us this is what happened. This could be um and it it doesn't seem to make sense, but it's consistent with someone experiencing trauma. In assessing credibility, right, what are we looking towards? Um, And I make a big to-do of this all the time. These credibility assessments in these cases are incredibly difficult. And, again, they can be done really poorly. Um, You know, (laughs) when when I see people going, um, when I met with this person, he or she was really nervous, and, therefore, this reflects on credibility, I kind of – my. I, my eyeballs want to come out of my socket, right? It's like no. <laughs> I, I I hate to say this to you, but if I'm 18 or 19 years old and the dean of students is calling me in to investigate something, even if I'm innocent, right, or haven't done anything inappropriate, I may be very nervous. There are people who are, you know, nervous when telling the truth, and then there are people who are as calm as cucumbers when lying. And so demeanor is not a way to meaningfully assess credibility, in my opinion. Um, But what we'd be looking for is does this account of the story match up with what we see in the video evidence that we've seen? Does it match up with third-party accounts and all that sort of stuff? I mean, we do a more sophisticated assessment of credibility, but we don't reflexively say, if I if this had happened to me, I would have reacted this way and therefore because they're acting in an odd way, it didn't happen. That's not the end of the conversation. Right,
0: because everyone reacts differently to the same type of situation.
1: People react uniquely to traumatic events, yeah. And frankly, you don't know how you will react to a traumatic event until you've been through one.
0: Absolutely. Well, thank you for sharing that insight. I think that's really critical for student conduct professionals who haven't been trauma informed trained yet to go get that training, especially if you're working in Title IX investigation or Title IX adjudication. I do want to uh,
1: let me can I just do one quick plug there is um to me um doctor and I'm not saying anything that anybody doesn't already know but the person who rocks my world in this area <laughs> is Dr. <laughs> exactly it's, it's a student affairs n- nerdiness that I I fully embrace okay and so the person who rocks my world in this area is uh, Dr. Rebecca Campbell and she has like a 90 minute video on youtube it's accessible to anyone where she explains the impact of trauma how it manifests itself and why so the neurobiology of it so i highly recommend folks uh to go check that out it's 90 minutes it is so cool so worthwhile and uh, i highly recommend it
0: we love free resources those are the best (laughs) yeah you're right can you repeat the name of the video and the the doctor one more time
1: Her name is Dr. Rebecca Campbell, and I think it's on YouTube as the Neurobiology of Trauma. Uh, and let me just say, I've had, I had a chance to sit in on a training. I can't remember how long it was. It, it didn't feel very long, which is a good sign because it was probably a day long that she participated in, and she just rocked my world. You know, she, she explains this and understands the research in this area better than anybody that I'm familiar with in this field.
0: Excellent. Well, listeners, we'll try to get the link to that video in the show notes, so hopefully you'll just be able to scroll over and click on that. Scott, I wanted to talk to you a little bit about uh, your work with the NACUA Journal. Speaking of being student affairs nerdy, uh, the NACUA Journal, I think, is you know a great resource for student affairs professionals who want to know what's going on in the legal side of higher ed. Uh, what trends are you seeing on that end?
1: Yeah, I think the immediate Trend is to kind of get a sense, a, a, a grasp on, well, what does the Trump administration mean from um, an enforcement side? So that's kind of the immediate issue, and obviously, you know, well, what's going to happen to the Dear Colleague letter? So I'll I'll just start there, and what I would say is, and this is sort of me playing Nostradamus here, but I think it's informed that for a while there, the Department of Education was, and I'm talking, you know, under the Obama administration, was reflexively going to broad scale program compliance reviews on Title IX complaints. And frankly, what we found is that they weren't staffed sufficiently, to, to basically process those compliance reviews in a prompt way. And I think at some point someone said, I think they said the average time from start to finish for those reviews was four plus years. And that's in essence why we have a backlog, I think, of 300 universities who are still under investigation, some of whom haven't heard from the Department of Education in a while. So my prediction is I would expect. Just given where things are, and given this administration, that you're going to see a far less ambitious. Department of Education on the compliance side. Certainly, I don't think they will reflexively go to full-scale program compliance reviews. And instead, what they will do is if they get a complaint, they will investigate the individual complaint, which historically has been their practice. So that's number one. I think that the second big issue from a student affairs standpoint is we look at the students who are coming in to institutions and i haven't seen the most recent data but the percentage of students with high-end psychiatric problems coming in to institutions that percentage i think increases um has increased fairly significantly over time and i don't know and there's interesting back and forth is that a product of people you know feeling more comfortable coming forward Or is there some cultural issue afoot that is making our uh, young people more anxious, giving them more mental health issues? But dealing with those in a nuanced way on a college campus, especially when the mental health um, issues turn to, in particular, self-harm, uh, but certainly, you know, threat to others? Um, how, do, how do we effectively deal with those issues in a way that is respectful to our students, doesn't exacerbate the individual problem, protects our entire community, and doesn't run afoul of the ADA? I think that's obviously, and it will continue to be an, an ongoing challenge. I think lastly, is, and this is, I don't want to say it's unprecedented, but I think it is, um, state legislatures who are, are taking the position in a lot of states that, hey, especially on our public campuses, that it would be a really good idea to add guns <laughs> to, mm-hmm. to our, our college campuses um, in managing the issues associated with that, which knock on wood, I mean, there haven't really been any significant issues to, to date on, on that. So uh, I think those are kind of the, the significant issues. Title IX is a big one, ADA issues, accommodation issues, and then this sort of guns on campus issue.
0: So I want to go back to what you were talking about related to ADA um, in terms of both the conduct process and the behavior intervention team process. Uh, What have you kind of noticed as some common pitfalls or potential pitfalls for conduct officers and behavioral intervention professionals as they work through cases where there is an intersection with a disability?
1: Uh, Yeah. So these are always difficult cases, Um, and I'm going to give you cliché, but it's cliché for a reason um, because it's important. We can't silo information, and as a lawyer, I want to be careful about what I say here, but I've seen people say – Don't share this information with that person or whomever because, hey, FERPA. If we have concerns about the safety, the health and safety of our students, there's clearly an exception to FERPA, um, which would allow us to share that information and you know it's it's important i think that that we share that information that it not get siloed that people who are seeing different things are able to connect the dots and so that the school can intervene in a meaningful way when i when i see intervention done poorly it's someone who has important information for some reason knows a little bit of law to be dangerous, right, and they decide to hold on to that information, whether it's, uh, hey, I don't want to share this with the the dean of students because FERPA, you know, my student isn't showing up to class or, you know, has really gone through a decline, and uh, I don't want to share that information because I'm concerned with violating FERPA, or uh, I'm I'm concerned that I might be regarding this person as disabled, and I don't share that information. When when behavioral intervention teams work well, it is when information is being shared th- so that people in the decision making uh, roles can connect all the dots and make intelligent decisions.
0: Right, and one of the things I think we do a lot of education about on our campuses is uh, with FERPA. You know, it does allow us to share observable information, that's not part of a student's record, Um, information related to health and safety concerns, as well as educational need to know. And I think that uh, there are a lot of folks who uh, interpret that in different ways.
1: Yeah. And and let me just say, so I I do think guidance and I'm going to give my advice. I would certainly I'm going to give this disclaimer because I don't want to get anyone in trouble. Certainly confer with your campus counsel, who may have a different opinion. Um but when in doubt, in my opinion, um, we share information, certainly when what's at issue is the health and safety of the student who we're concerned about and or the certainly the school community. I mean, uh, I, I would much rather um, be dealing with, you know, hey, a, a FERPA, you know, you, you didn't comply with, FERPA, and now they're going to be consequences, which, by the way, hasn't been an enforcement um, prerogative for quite a long time, then this student really hurt themselves through, you know, a suicidal act or, you know, has hurt someone else. And so, to me, you know, FERPA is always a consideration, but it is secondary consideration. And I, I do worry sometimes that, again... Having a little bit of knowledge about the law sometimes can be a dangerous thing. Perspective is important, and I think you know it is important for our counsel's office at different institutions to share our perspective. That yet yeah, we get it. FERPA is important, but it's more important to us that if you have important information about a student, that you share that information so that we can intervene appropriately. Because the the biggest priority. Uh, Education is number one, but secondarily is making sure that our students, you know, are safe while they're on campus. And so, again, making sure they're on silos of information is important. And I will say this, I've seen compliance people at some schools give what I think is really kind of bad advice because they're frankly losing They're focused on the tree and and missing the the whole forest here. Uh, Again, confidentiality is important. It's codified in law, FERPA, ADA, all that sort of stuff. But uh, there are exceptions for a variety of good policy reasons which allow us to share information when the health and safety of our students is at issue.
0: I worked with a couple of different general counsels. And I think that the best pieces of advice I've always heard are, you know, we do our best work before we risk a potential lawsuit, not after. (laughs) And then also, you know, when our legal counsel is well integrated into our processes uh, appropriately, we're all going to be better off in the long run.
1: Yeah. I I think that's, um, that's great advice. Um, You know, when I was in house You know, there's certainly look. There's a style of being an attorney that, frankly, either (laughs) makes people willing to give you a seat at the table or, or not. And from my perspective as an attorney, when these decisions are being made, I'd much rather have a seat at the table uh, because we may reach the same decision with my being at the table, but we may approach it in a way that, frankly, insulates us from potential liability or criticism and all that sort of stuff. Uh, You know, this won't maybe make me popular, but I think it is, is with lawyers, but I think it is good lawyering. If your reflexive response to everything as a lawyer is to say, no, 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 at some point, and look, sometimes you have to. I mean, there are some things that uh, people in student conduct might want to do, and you go, no, under no circumstances, <laughs> can we do that? It's like, no way. That's my role. I'm exercising my prerogative.
0: We try not um, to do that to it, you all.
1: Yeah, exactly. And it's rare. I mean, I could probably count on two fingers the number of times I've I've had to say, no, 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 no way, no how. You can't do it this way. And you can't do this at all. Um, but but if that is your reaction to kind of everything as an attorney or, you know, I, I, I just remember, I will say this, I, I occasionally find myself overwhelmed with the volume of issues and kind of the uniqueness, if that's a word, of the issues that we're dealing with, <laughs> and it can be overwhelming. And if, if my response as counsel is, is either to say no, 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 or to kind of fly off the handle every time one of these very difficult um, situations is being worked through the the dean of student's office or student affairs office or conduct's office, however it's structured, you won't have a seat at the table. And from an institutional perspective, that's bad, I think. And so, you know, I try to talk to in-house counsel about, you know, understanding your role when it's time to say, you know, no, but, you know, how to work with folks uh, in student affairs so that you can, when it's important, you know, be asked your opinion on things. And so, yeah, I, I think that's important. I will also say, I mean, I'm blessed I'm thinking of some folks right off the top of my head. Uh, I, I think there are temp, there's a certain temperament of lawyer that is especially good in working in student affairs. I think of my friend, um, Josh Zugish, who's at Colorado state. He's in house. He does student affairs work. I mean, he's just so temperamentally like I'm jealous of the dude. (laughs) He's, yeah, he's, he's very even keeled. He, he doesn't get like, Oh my God, this is the worst thing in the world. How are we going to deal with it? He's very calm, and he understands the big picture perspective and, you know, he just has this sort of emotional intelligence um, skill set that, you know, I'm I, this a guy, he's probably my age, but I look at him and I go, yeah, this is a guy I, I like to emulate or would like to emulate. So, I mean, that's a long, very long-winded answer, but those are my thoughts.
0: Well, it's a great shout-out for CSU. Go Rams. I have a uh, many, many friends and family who have come through CSU over the years. Whoop, um, whoop. And hey, if they tell you that Josh stinks,
1: I'm sorry. This is just my 20,000-foot <laughs> perspective. Well, now this is going to
0: be him. out in public space, so, you know, he'll, he'll get the kudos <laughs> either way. So, Scott, if folks have follow-up questions or want to reach you or hire your firm for trauma-informed training, how can they get a hold of you?
1: Yeah, um, so what a great question. I'm on LinkedIn, which I, I put a lot of free stuff on there because I just like this. I like doing this work, and so I'll post a lot of free uh, articles. Just look me up, Scott Schneider, S-C-H-N-E-I-D-E-R, uh, on LinkedIn. I'm with Fisher Phillips. And uh, if you want to email me, that's cool. It's S Schneider, uh, so S-S-C-H-N-E-I-D-E-R, At Fisher, F-I-S-H-E-R, Phillips, P-H-I-L-L-I-P-S dot com. I didn't think I would have to spell uh, in this podcast, but I think... I think I was successful.
0: (laughs) Well, I'm going to follow you. Spelling (laughs) my last name. (laughs) Uh, With the spelling, if you want to reach the podcast, you can email us at ASCAPodcast at gmail.com. That's A-S-C-A-P-O-D-C-A-S-T at gmail.com. Or you can tweet us and follow us on Twitter at ASCAPodcast. So thank you so much, Scott, for joining us today. I really hope our listeners got a lot out of this very rich conversation. uh, And we hope to uh, send some follow-up information and questions your way.
1: Love it, Jill. Thank you.
0: Thank you. To close out this episode, I wanted to share with you the testimony that I was able to share at the U.S. Department of Education's hearing on October 4th. This was the hearing related to regulatory reform for post-secondary education. Speakers were allotted five minutes, and there were people there ranging from accreditors to financial aid advocates to Cleary supporters, et cetera, et cetera. And I wanted to give a specific shout out to Allison Kiss, the executive director of the Cleary Center. She took a small portion of her five minutes to support ASCA as well, and we're very grateful for her uh, taking some of her own time to support our work but I wanted to share with you what we actually said and entered into the federal record. This was a big step for ASCA in attempting to work with the new administration on how our profession is regulated. So I'm gonna share that with you now. It is about five minutes and we really worked hard to try to hit some very clear salient points, but knowing that five minutes is just not a lot of time to really dive deep into the major issues that we know that our profession faces. So here we go. Good morning. My name is Jill Creighton, and I serve as the president of the Association for Student Conduct Administration, a 501c3 representing more than 3,000 higher education student conduct administrators at approximately 1,200 colleges and universities in all 50 states. We are the highly trained practitioners who work with student disciplinary concerns at the post-secondary level, including cases of alcohol or drug misuse, theft, physical assault, hazing, harassment, and sexual misconduct. 93% of us have earned master's and or terminal degrees. We have been trained in how to investigate, ask questions, apply laws, write thorough reports, and innumerable other skills required to do this work. Many of our members also serve as deputy Title IX coordinators. For 30 years, ASCA has taught campus administrators to adjudicate student misconduct from a lens of fundamental fairness using a myriad of conflict resolution techniques, including formal investigation and adjudication, restorative justice, conflict coaching, and mediation. Every day, I'm responsible for talking with, listening to, learning about our students' lives. I'm charged with ensuring that all students are treated with respect and dignity and upholding the tenets of fundamental fairness. Today, I will speak to three concerns raised by the Student Conduct Administrator community. First, I want to speak to campus student conduct due process and deference to campus administrations. Federal courts have determined what encompasses adequate campus due process. Decisions including Dixon v. Alabama State Board of Education, Goss v. Lopez, and Esteban v. Central Missouri State University give clear guidance that we must provide adequate notice. This includes a description of the alleged behavior and the date and time of the alleged incident. We must also provide some kind of hearing. Hearings must include the opportunity to respond to and ask questions of the totality of information about the allegation, including information provided by other parties. In 1968, the Western District of Missouri issued a general order that clearly articulates why campus processes should not resemble courts of law and should have a separate and distinct function related to the maintenance of a safe campus environment. The courts have spelled out the requirements of campus due process, which are widely used today. Any new rulemaking should reflect what the courts have already decided and not attempt to make campus administrative proceedings into a mock courtroom. ASCA teaches that campus processes must be fundamentally fair. However, we do not believe it is the role of the government to micromanage them. The 2001 guidance states, One of the fundamental aims has been to emphasize that, in addressing allegations of sexual harassment, the good judgment and common sense of teachers and school administrators are important elements of a response that meets the requirements of Title IX. The 97 guidance, quote, offers school personnel flexibility in how to respond to sexual harassment. I encourage this administration to continue to provide adequate flexibility to schools and professionals so that they may feasibly manage their administrative process, including student discipline. Second, I want to address the preponderance of the evidence standard as it applies to Title IX. Case law asserts the preponderance of the evidence standard is the most appropriate for student conduct proceedings. ASCA recommends it because it is the only standard that reflects the integrity of equitable student conduct processes for all parties. On a campus, we are evaluating whether a student violated our institutional policies. We are not determining whether a student broke the law. The most severe sanction an institution can impose is expulsion from that school. While this is certainly a serious consequence, it is not comparable to loss of life or liberty. That is what the criminal justice system protects. Given the lower stakes, the preponderance standard is the suitable and equitable standard by which to weigh a complaint. Most campuses already use and have been using preponderance for student conduct cases long before the rescinded 2011 guidance, the same standard by which civil litigation cases are decided in a court of law. In Doe v. Brandeis University, which was not a Title IX complaint, the court raised concerns that applying different standards of proof for different behaviors at the same institution is in and of itself discriminatory. Changing a campus's burden of proof through regulation, whether at the federal or state level, not only ignores institutional deference, it also de facto determines the standard for all campus violations, lest we create a discriminatory environment. Third, I asked for clarification on the use of mediation for sexual violence cases. On her September 28, 2017 call with NACUA, Assistant Secretary Jackson stated that mediation is permitted for sexual violence cases, whereas the 2001 guidance specifically prohibits this. We request a clarification as to the definition of mediation as the Department of Education sees it, as well as the role of other methods of informal resolution, such as restorative justice, shuttle diplomacy, and facilitated dialogue. In conclusion, student conduct administrators have, thus far, been excluded from conversations that directly impact our abilities to do our jobs well. I understand the Department of Education has been working with both NACUA and ACE. While student conduct professionals often work closely with campus legal counsel, we have the valuable perspective of interacting directly with all students, respondents, complainants, witnesses, and others as we execute campus procedures. The Department of Education would be remiss to exclude our practical experience from any future negotiated rulemaking or other procedures. Therefore, we respectfully request to be included in future efforts to change the federal regulations. We invite Secretary DeVos and Assistant Secretary Jackson to attend the ASCA Annual Conference in February 2018 as our guests. It is prudent and necessary for the Department of Education to garner a stronger sense of the student conduct profession, those who work in the field, and the level of training and expertise we bring to the table. Thank you for your time. Next week on the ASCA Viewpoints podcast, we welcome JJ Larson. JJ is the current president of HECMA, which is the Higher Education Case Managers Association. JJ and I got to have an in-person dialogue at the HECMA Annual Roundtable, which was in Denver, Colorado over the summer. So JJ and I will be speaking about what it means to be a case manager and how case management intersects with student conduct. I hope you'll come back and join us. This episode was produced and hosted by Jill Creighton, that's me, co-produced, edited, and mixed by Colleen Mater. Special thanks to New York University's Office of Student Conduct and Community Standards for allowing us the time and space to create this project. If you're enjoying the podcast, we ask that you please like, rate, and review us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. It really helps others discover us and helps us become more visible in the general podcasting community. If you have suggestions for featured guests or would like to be featured on the podcast yourself, please feel free to reach out to us on Twitter at ASCAPodcast or by email at Podcast at gmail.com.